Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Benjamin Liu, co-founder and CEO at TrialSpark. TrialSpark is a tech-driven drug development partner, and what sets us apart is the speed and agility of our in-house clinical trial engine. As many of you know, most pharma companies are forced to allocate their clinical trial budgets to only a few opportunities within their portfolios. This means that safe and effective treatments are left sitting on shelves rather than the hands of patients, and TrialSpark is uniquely positioned to develop those drugs more efficiently. By automating and streamlining the clinical trial process, our platform eliminates the costly, time-intensive tasks of traditional drug trials. And as a result, less time is spent on development and more life-saving drugs are brought to market. So how do we do this? Well, we have a few types of flexible partnership structures. One involves investing and licensing. We invest equity in companies, license clinical stage pharmaceutical assets, and form unique strategic partnerships to develop therapeutics using our in-house clinical trial engine. Second, involves running clinical trials. We also work alongside life science companies to accelerate their trials, all the way from initial study design to final data output. So that's us in a nutshell. We're growing a lot right now, both the team as well as the breadth of our experience, and we're so excited about our mission to bring new treatments to patients faster and more efficiently. Great to have you on, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we'd love to start off and just hear about your background and the arc of your career up to this point. Yeah, so my background is actually trained as a computational biologist and went into computational biology because like many was really excited about how the confluence of all the genomic, proteomic, transcriptomic data uh, mixed with AI and machine learning, just kind of my background could transform the speed in which we discover new medicines. So I went to graduate work, uh, studying Parkinson's and Alzheimer's trying to apply computational biology to identify you know, new drugs, new therapeutics, and new biomarkers. And during my graduate work, we ended up identifying a few candidate drug opportunities and needed to run a clinical trial and was exposed to how expensive and time-consuming that process was. But I remember very naively going to a number of pharma execs and saying, hey, we've discovered these drugs. Aren't you guys really excited? And all of them would just basically say, sorry, your your bubble, but we see hundreds of drug candidates every single quarter. And when a single clinical trial cost a few hundred million dollars, that's really where our bottleneck is. And we could stop research today. And we oftentimes have more good drugs than we could afford to prosecute. So I think the core realization is like, if we wanted to bring new medicines to patients faster and more efficiently, ironically, the bottleneck isn't in discovery and it's in the cost and time. And that's what really motivated myself and kind of our team to start TrialSpark. Great. And so Ben, on that note, we'd love to learn a bit more about the founding story at TrialSpark, how you came about the idea and just your own entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. So I think, you know, that founding story was, you know, consequence of kind of discovering this thing that I didn't expect, which drug discovery wasn't the bottleneck, bottlenecks the cost and time of the clinical trial. So we kind of kind of thought in first principles, well, if we live in a world where there's more good drugs than the industry can afford to prosecute, and no one really knows what's going to work until you run a clinical trial, how do we basically enable more throughput across the industry? And we saw this kind of trend that actually drug discovery is getting more efficient, but the cost and time of a clinical trial, as you guys know, 
can be hundreds of millions of dollars across all the phases. And so what motivated us was say, well, if the bottleneck of bringing new medicines to patients is the clinical trial, how can we start a company that can run and prosecute clinical trials cheaper and faster? And then subsequently, not only help other people bring new medicines to market, but also maybe playing a role there ourselves. You know, I think a big part of deciding to start a company, you know, having, you know, trained as an academic and really kind of loving that work was at one point I asked this kind of question, like, what would the world look like if I didn't do continued work, postdoc, grad school, or kind of pursue a professorship? And that just be kind of counterfactual view of impact. The key part of this is like asking, what would the world look like if you weren't doing what you did today? And though I maybe fancy myself a reasonable scientist, there's so many awesome scientists and people are making so many discoveries. But the realization was that, you know, if I stop being a professor or pursuing a postdoc to be a professor, that one less scientist wasn't necessarily going to kind of change the needle, but no one was really working on fundamentally, how do we make trials cheaper and faster to unlock more productivity for the industry? And that was a big, I think, reason for why I took the leap. If I worked on this, maybe, you know, I could actually move the needle on, on something really important. Wonderful. You know, it, it strikes me as the origins of many interesting companies started with a scientist in graduate school with a unique perspective, right? Beyond trial spark, companies like Google, right, come to mind, for example. When you think about the arc of trial sparks history, I would love to just hear a little bit about maybe some of the initial foci of the company and how that sort of evolved over the past uh, handful of years. Right, definitely. And so when we started the company, you know, kind of the core thesis was that if you wanted to have one competitive advantage as a pharma company, uh, arguably the one advantage to have is you can run trials cheaper and faster. So we kind of mapped out this long-term view, right? At the end day, our aspirational goal was to create that next generation pharma company. And in order to do that, we wanted to build the engine to run trials cheaper and faster. And so the kind of short, medium, long-term was build the engine to run trials, run trials for a combination of cash and equity for other companies, and the future maybe begin to run trials for yourself and you know, kind of capitalize on the upside. But even to just build an engine to run clinical trials, we often try to deconstruct problems into its fundamental building blocks to reconstruct upwards. So what is a clinical trial? Well, it is finding patients. Uh, so patient recruitment, it is all the technology and sites in order to run trials. And then there's the whole traditional CRO layer, the project managing, the people, the processes, the quality systems. And so, you know, one of the challenges I'm sure that you guys um, have experienced is, you know, as an entrepreneur, you need to start somewhere and you need to create traction somewhere. And to say our end goal is to be a full stack pharma company, that's something that's almost impossible to finance. Even if you say, I want to be a CRO. Well, biotechs don't need a CRO after they've chosen a CRO partner for once every two, three, four years. And so how do you create that first initial building block that you can create that bigger vision across? And so we started you know, saying, well, to be a CRO, we needed patient recruitment. So we built patient recruitment capabilities. We sold that as a product line. Then we created clinical trial sites and technology support running trials. And we sold that as a product line. And then subsequently we had built out the full CRO, the people, the processes, both the technology and the operations to do that. And so the journey was this very kind of, I think, sequenced approach where you're building just enough in each stage to unlock maybe the next level. And that was kind of our evolution as a company. And now that we've built development engine to run trials cheaper and faster, we're beginning to look at ways that we can co-develop drugs or even think about exploring the upside of some of the assets themselves. 
It's awesome. And when you look at the infrastructure that existed when you started, and when I say infrastructure, I mean the tools, the resources, the processes that already were used in the industry. I'm sure there's maybe some small subset you're still leveraging. What portion of what was out there are you leveraging today versus did you see an opportunity to make those quantum leaps by doing it yourself or doing it net new? Yeah. So, you know, I think a big fundamental belief for us is that being full stack is really important. And fundamentally, the biggest opportunity and challenge, I think, for tech companies trying to innovate in a highly regulated industry like pharma is how do you culturally get the combination of the tech side of the business with also deep industry experts in pharma and CROs? And the biggest challenge and opportunity is like creating a culture that can both celebrate both sides, encourage the kind of debate and collaboration that happens to create something new. And for us, we felt that it was really important to make some key investments in terms of building our own tools that then our operators actually use to execute on the clinical trial. And so what we believe makes clinical trials inefficient today is that you know CROs fundamentally are cost plus bill per hour type of business models. And so a lot of the opportunities is actually create software and tech that abstracts out those billable hours. And so in order to kind of create that, a lot of the things that we built were kind of with this kind of first principles mindset of like, if I wanted to go from point A to point B in terms of the logistics of a clinical trial, what is the software I can build to allow it to happen? And how does that disintermediate some of those a traditional kind of aspects that are being done, but maybe, you know, as you kind of alluded to in 2020 and beyond, you actually might not need to do it uh, that certain way. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Thanks. And so Ben, I think you had a couple of co-founders when you first started the company. How did you three all land on an idea? I'm sure budding entrepreneurs that are listening have two questions. How did you find your co-founders? And then as a follow-on, what were some of the challenges you faced when you were raising capital? as an outsider to the CRO space and how you responded? Like I, I faced a lot of the same questions, I'm, I'm sure, but just, yeah, I wanted to share some notes. Yeah, sure. In terms of like how I encountered my two co-founders, Kit Dobbins and Len Howe, Kit and I were fortunate enough that we were randomly assigned as roommates at a pre-orientation program when we were going out to kind of Oxford. And so I kind of met him through that. And we had a really early conversation around what we wanted to get out of this part of the journey. And for us, we felt like we we're fortunate enough that there are certain amounts of kind of maybe institutional credibility. And specifically, this was kind of the Rhodes Scholarship that put us kind of in touch with, with each other. And we said, like, we almost going to owe it because a lot of us, we we're fortunate enough to come from like and have studied at educational institutions that that in itself maybe has a certain amount of uh, weight that's given to it, that almost in response to that, you ought to do the riskiest thing and try to make the biggest impact. And so that was a conversation we had. And for us and for me, you know, the reason why we went to computational biology was to discover new medicines. And we kind of talked about this kind of problem. Kit and my other co-founder, Lin Hao, uh, were actually roommates as well at a summer internship at Salesforce. And so we had kind of all lived together. And I think having that familiarity and really first being friends uh, that you enjoyed debating issues with created a great foundation that we felt like they were, uh, we were going to be good co-founders together. In terms of kind of raising capital, so we raised kind of our first institutional capital in 2016. And, you know, as you kind of alluded to at that time, I don't think there was as much of this view of that healthcare and tech or pharma and tech, life sciences and tech, there's the big opportunity to kind of marry the two together. 
you know, we were fortunate enough to partner with Mike Moritz and the team at Sequoia, uh, who has seen maybe really traditional, large regulated industries get disrupted by technology. So I think they came in with this view that that was a big opportunity. And there's alignment around this kind of outsider uh, mentality that sometimes an outsider with a beginner's mindset will take, you know, kind of an approach of almost thinking about a process brick by brick and reconstruct upwards. And this kind of first principles approach that if you kind of find folks, and this is something we look for in team members who have a keen appreciation for expertise, but at the same time is curious around asking, well, why has something been done this way? That that kind of uh, mentality allows you to then take a different approach. So there's definitely, I think, challenges as being an outsider in the space, but I think fortunate enough that we had folks that believe that that's as much of a strength as well as, you know, kind of an opportunity to have that outsider mentality. And, you know, I think that outsider mentality, I'm sure, has given you a perspective to see things that others don't. And so in terms of how TrawSpark is operating today, would love to learn a little bit about uh, how you're engaging with members of the life sciences community, uh, what some of the interesting programs are that you're working on right now, along with how those new models have evolved based on what you've learned over the past few years. Yeah, I think it's a really important aspect here. I'm sure you guys have also experienced this is like, you cannot succeed here without deep industry experience. But what you want to create is an environment where there's good dynamic friction with people with the kind of decades of experience and also people who come outside of the industry. And then if you can kind of set up a culture of low ego individuals who care about the team getting to the right answer versus being personally right, you can create uh, new ways of thinking. And so what does our team look like? Well, we have people with deep industry experience. Our chief medical officer, Ken Somberg, was the CMO at Covance. So he comes with just such a unique knowledge around how the industry has operated and also a burning desire to take all those learnings and think differently was the head of quality at the medicines company. We have people like my co-founder, Lin Hao, who's our, our CTO, came from Salesforce and Oscar Health with engineers that have come from Palantir and Google and other kind of consumer companies on the patient design and design kind of front. You know, I, I think having the opportunity to have people from diverse perspectives has been such an important part, but it's also challenging, right? Because, you know, you talk with most people from industry and they never worked with an in-house designer. And what is a designer? What is a product actually? Well, it's not the drug product. We're actually talking about the software products that we're building. And then on the flip side, you know, people from an engineering background, there's, you know, kind of a foreign language around drug developments and IND, you know, all these kind of aspects. And so, you know, I think it's so powerful if you get right, but a lot of deliberate work needed to kind of bridge the gaps between two teams. But one thing that we found to be so important is the willingness to see value in the other side and that kind of notion of not caring about being personally right versus the team getting to the right answer being okay zigging while other people zag and, and kind of thinking in first principles, those are things that are not always the easiest things to do, especially if you come from, you know, I think companies that have maybe discouraged uh, some of the questions, but why are we doing it this way? I think at a certain point in some of the larger companies that asking those questions tend to be uh, more challenging over time. And just to follow up on that, you know, it strikes me as that it's a it's not just a cultural question or cultural facet of TrialSpark, but it's also something you probably look for from a recruiting standpoint, given that there's probably a measurable number of people listening today who are on either side of that fence, right? They have deep domain expertise or they're coming at the industry fresh, looking to have an impact. What guidance do you have 
to recruit or identify folks who have that low ego, flexible mind, team-centric approach that has made Charles Spark successful? Yeah, I think we fundamentally believe we're only going to be as great as the people we're able to partner with and our ability to develop and grow them. And you know, as you alluded to, kind of the values are so important there. And, and we think these values are universal and can come from, you know, as you mentioned, someone with deep industry experience, but also complete outsiders. There's a few litmus tests that we kind of look for in team members and some of you alluded to. But one is we want to partner with people who we can learn something uniquely new from. And we kind of think about as a team, you're trying to increase the global learning rate from the company. And if someone can teach you something new or has an expertise that you don't have, and people are receptive to that, that creates global learning at an extreme rate. We also want to partner people we're comfortable reporting into. Uh, So we always ask this question, would we want to report into this person? And this is more just like around if you're consistently partnering with people that you would want to report into, you know a couple of things. One is that there's a high sense of respect for that person. The reality, I'm sure we've all experienced at companies, you know, at our sizes, is that, you know, when you're a smaller company, someone's going to be leading and someone's going to be following. So literally, you are, quote unquote, reporting into that person because that person is going to lead an initiative and you're going to follow. And and so that's kind of really, really important to us. Uh, The third kind of thing we look for is people we don't want to disappoint. And whenever we have this feeling of a team member that we don't want to disappoint, what that usually reflects is this person's going to draw the best out of you because you also highly respect their opinion, you admire them, and you want to bring the best version of yourself and vice versa. And I think the teams that, you know, as reflected, that we've most uh, enjoyed working at had this kind of feeling that you're elevating your game, not out of a place of a fear, but because you so value this person's contributions to the team that you want to kind of increase and kind of up-level your game and vice versa and increase a lot of, you know, positive compounders in terms of uh, value. So, so those are kind of the three things we look for as litmus tests in terms of hiring. And then, you know, we look for examples where people were more concerned with the team being right than them being personal. Because I, I think that's where, you know, you can have a great debate and, and also people who are willing to be challenged no matter where that challenge comes from. And so hierarchical kind of organizations tend to discourage that we try to be, you know, as flat as possible in terms of how we make decisions. That's great, Ben. You hinted a bit at the evolution of your own mental model around the longer term vision of TrialSpark and perhaps what you initially communicated when you were going out to raise versus where you are now is, is quite different. Walk us through how you see the landscape shifting over the next five to 10 years and TrialSpark's role in that. Yeah. So, you know, when we initially raised, we had put into that our ultimate ambitions is to be, you know, a company that can develop its own drugs because it has an advantage around being kind of cheaper and faster. And I think what was important for us and, and what we really kind of appreciated is kind of, and we have this kind of saying internally, we like folks who are macro optimists, micro pessimists. And so you have this like long-term goal, but if you don't execute in the short term and kind of build up to it, right? build up to building a CRO engine because the thesis is cheaper, faster trials is what allows you to create more value out of drugs. Well, if you can't get there, you can't do the uh, next thing. And so recruitment sites, CRO, now that we have the CRO engine, now you can basically leverage that to see upside in, in drug assets. And so, you know, I think the evolution was one that we spent you know, a long time just making sure we're executing on it. How do we see this in the future? Well, I think you see a lot of companies who have a very similar thesis, right? The Bridge Bios, the Roy Vance, and some funds like the Clarises and you know Centessas about to go public. 
where there's this view that you can in-license drugs into companies and almost leverage this arbitrage opportunity where there's a lot of drugs that you can acquire for less than there are in the initial research what was needed to get them into the clinic. And then most of these companies will subsequently you know, hire external CROs and they're burning good amount of capital, running trials with the traditional kind of approaches. And when we kind of saw that, we said, well, there's a big opportunity to acquire these drugs, but then also prosecute them using a cheaper, faster trial engine with the idea that we can take more shots on goal or also co-develop where we're sharing the risk amongst a partner. And you know, beyond just a cheaper, faster trial engine, you know, we see a lot of really interesting uh, tailwinds around sales and marketing as well. What does sales and marketing look like in the future? Obviously, with the rows and the hims and hers and the Nurexes and these DTC kind of opportunities, you know, that's a big tailwind. Sales and marketing traditionally is also running trials, you know, running phase four Medifair trials to, to kind of demonstrably show this drug is better than this other drug in market. And so those are kind of capabilities that we kind of actively think about that there's opportunities around what we built to also leverage to think about some of the downstream commercialization activities in a different way. But I think it's a really exciting time to be a biotech and reflected upon, you know, probably where we were collectively when we started kind of our company versus I think how much financing and how much opportunity is there that we see the next few decades as a big, exciting time to continue, I think, you know, serving patients in, in a unique way. It's awesome. And, you know, when it comes to the company, it seems like a core part of the competitive advantage has been both the combination of technology, process, and perspective, right, that you have related to running a trial. So I guess I've got two sort of questions that sort of dovetail into each other. The first is how much more cheaper or more efficient is it to run a trial with TrialSpark versus a conventional CRO? And then second, what are some of the facets of what you do differently as the conventional process that makes you guys so good? Yeah. So maybe to start off with the speed and cost efficiency. So we're able to run a trial for around half the time and half the cost of a traditional CRO. Now, typically if we're fee for service, we try to compete by quality and by speed because a lot of our clients are actually less concerned around cash in an individual perspective, but quality and speed. Speed because you save a few months, you unlock more NPV for drug, and that's worth a lot for, for our clients. And how do we do that? Well, well, maybe to contrast how traditionally CROs operate and some of the uh, incentives and then how we kind of think about trials and to kind of call out where some of the bigger cost and time deltas come from. So as you guys know, traditionally, if you're running a trial with a CRO, the CRO is managing the study, but the trial actually get runs at individual trial sites. So let's say you're running a phase two clinical trial using 40 different trial sites. All those trial sites kind of operate a little bit differently. Some might collect data using paper source. Some might use one system versus the other. That CRO kind of layer uh, really exists to manage variability across the sites, right? A bill per hour cost plus model. And the cost plus is maybe at a 40% margin where they bill hours to manage variability. And that creates kind of you know different incentives, right? The longer something takes, the more billable hours there are, the more revenue a CRO earns, just maybe like kind of you know, lawyers or contractors. In, in our model, and, and what's making maybe kind of the whole recruitment issue kind of worse is traditionally, if you're running a dermatology study, every pharma and every biotech are using the same sites. They're all competing for the same patients. After a few years, all the patients that otherwise would be eligible have we been picked off. Kind of our model in mind is, is pretty simple. We find where the patients are, the doctors that see those patients, and we empower those patients and doctors to be involved in the research study. This might mean their referral sites to an existing trial site. 
We might use direct-to-patient advertising recruitment methods, and that allows us to reach the 95 to 99% of patients and doctors that traditionally industry struggle to reach. When we create these trial sites, all our trial sites operate using end-to-end technology that we built in-house. So think about kind of an e-source, e-CRF, EDC, e-pro, payments kind of all in one. With the idea of all 40 of your trial sites use the same technology platform, so much of those bill per hour cost plus zero activities are disintermediated. And that really kind of shrinks down the cost. And by creating uh, more opportunities for patients and doctors to participate, we're able to accelerate recruitment timelines and unlock the 95 to 99%. But a big part of it is this incentive alignment, right? If your business model is a bill model event, and we all know something like source data verification or monitoring, right? As data moves from the site into the EDC, if it's not the same, traditionally a CRO is a billion an hour to address that. If all the sites use direct data capture, that costs collapse, right? It doesn't exist in the same way. Uh, the other kind of example is around speed, uh, startup. If you get to bill per hour for a CRA to visit a site, to pre-qualify a site, there's always a question that we get from biotechs. I've used 20 sites for my phase two. I'm using the same 20 sites for my phase three. Why do you have to do a pre-site qualification visit before your site initiation visit? Haven't you already kind of seen these sites and we kind of like the sites? Well, a pre-site qualification visit is a billable hour that a CRO can charge for CRA visiting that site. And so it becomes less around how do I get from point A to point B as fast as possible, but how many steps can I introduce to maximize the bill per hour kind of activities? And by being vertically integrated, we're able to align those incentives in kind of a real way. And, and so that's where we're able to achieve kind of the cost and time. If you kind of think about the CRO kind of gross margins under cost plus is usually around 40%. A big chunk of that comes from that in of itself. And thanks for walking us through in that level of detail. I love nerding out on, on this type of stuff. You know what, I think what's really exciting about the work that you guys are doing is the current construct of how trials have been run now for decades hasn't fundamentally changed ever since, you know, I've been in the industry and you were mentioning it, you know, we're, we're in this like golden age of biotech right now where discovery is not the rate limiter. It is how quickly can we prosecute some of these assets through clinical trials. So really appreciate the work that you and your team are doing at TrialSpark to modernize clinical development for this new workforce and to push this industry forward. So thanks for joining us today, Ben. It was great to have you on and finally meet you. Uh, thanks so much for having me and, and really excited about the decades ahead. I think it's going to be a, a fun ride for all that are involved in this industry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.